Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your composer host, Charlie McCarran, and this show is my way of sharing composing and songwriting advice from all sorts of creative people. You can check out every episode at composerquest.com or find the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Normally I podcast out of Minnesota, but this week I'm at the birthplace of rock and roll, Cleveland. I lucked out with a freelance gig out here getting some video and photos of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Pretty fun. I think my favorite part of the whole museum has been seeing the random scraps of handwritten lyrics from all these rock stars. They even had my favorite Randy Newman song, God Song, written on six sheets from a tiny hotel notepad. If there's a lesson to be learned here, it's that you should definitely save your handwritten lyrics for when you're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Today's episode features someone who's part rocker, part businessman. You may have heard his music in Sims 2, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, or the ever-popular Mac vs. PC ads. Composer Silas Height is proof that, yes, you can make it as a freelance composer, and still have time and creative energy to put out personal music projects. In our talk, Silas shares his creative process behind his rock albums and his scores for some wonderful documentaries, including one about the man who's broken the most world records. Before we get into our talk, I just want to say thank you to my anonymous new patron. You know who you are, so thank you. For anyone else thinking about becoming a Composer Quest patron, if you do it soon, you can get in on the special patron webcast party in June. We'll talk about what's coming up in Season 3, and I'll be writing a song on the spot, based on suggestions from the crowd. Should be fun. Visit patreon.com slash charlie if you're interested. Thanks. As always, feel free to get in touch with me by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com, or find ComposerQuest on Twitter or Facebook. Now let's get on to my talk with Silas Height. Hello. Hey, how are you? Hey, Silas. Good. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you thank, too. Thanks for being up for this. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, it was cool. I've been uh, checking out your podcast. It's awesome. Oh, sweet. Thanks. There's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but maybe we could start off talking about your documentary scoring, because you've sure. been doing a few documentaries. One in particular that I really liked was The Record Breaker, about the guy who has broken the most Guinness World Records. <laughs> yeah, he's quite a character, a Shrita Furman. Yeah. So what was the process like working on that? Uh, it was interesting. Um, the director, Brian McGinn, saw another film that I had scored, another documentary called The Invention of Dr. Nakamats, which is a great film about a Japanese inventor who has the most patents of all time. And uh, he's quite a quirky character as well. And I believe Brian saw that film at a film festival and sort of liked how the music portrayed this quirky but driven character and thought, you know, perhaps I'd be a good match for his film about the man with the most Guinness records. And uh, I scored the whole thing front to back in about two weeks and handed it over to him. And wow. uh, yeah, it was very... Because that's, there's like at least 20 different cues on there, aren't there? Probably about that. 
Yeah, it's um almost wall to wall music, and the mix is incredible. The music is loud, but you can still easily hear the dialogue and everything. There were a few spots that I really thought the music was great, like when it transitions into him talking about his guru that he went to study with, yes. and it changes from this kind of circusy vibe to a little more. I don't know what you call it, but <laughs> yeah. Transcendental or something? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say as soon as I saw Sri Chimai, I knew. I knew he was my teacher. I mean, I, I actually saw, you know, like light. I mean, I knew from the second I saw him that he, he was a holy person and that I, I wanted to follow him. I think people really like the soundtrack because there is sort of like uh, quirky, carefree, interesting music, but then there's a lot of heartfelt, emotional stuff that's a reflection of, you know, this guy's journey to become this, <laughs> the record breaker. I thought it was interesting, too, where you decided to not use music. Like, for example, when his dad is talking about their relationship and how it's kind of was rocky. Here I am, not talking to my son, not having any contact with him, and I miss him, and I miss seeing him, I miss talking to him, and I'm starting to question whether I am doing the right thing. There's like no music under that, which I thought was a great moment. I, I can't take credit for that. That would be Brian, oh. the director. <laughs> yeah. I usually let the director, you know, say that's enough there. <laughs> sure. I really like the contrast in that one, though, of yeah. different styles. And like the other part I really liked was the uh, when he's trying to break the record for eating the most malted milk balls on an elephant or something (laughs) ridiculous yeah catching i think it was um how many he could catch in his mouth in a minute while riding on an elephant or something like instrument was drum set and I started when I was 11 studying with a old jazz drummer great guy his name was Mel Zelnick and he played with like Benny Goodman and Patty Page and by the time I got to college I studied uh, percussion performance and it's sort of become a cornerstone of my sound on a lot of soundtracks I go back to is the percussion and I also studied marimba and you know the more melodic percussion instruments too and love using those instruments documentary I saw of yours stories from the evacuation do you want to explain that one a bit sure I was directed by John Hershend he won an award I think it was called the Sika award and was asked by the San Francisco Modern Museum of Art to create a film 
about their closing down. So the the SF MoMA is closing for three years, or it has closed already, and they moved all the art out, and they're doing like renovations and expanding and everything. And there's a lot of beautiful shots in the film of like the empty museum, and there's sort of this kind of emptiness, and these people are leaving this building, and and uh, so there's some like melancholy, but also some excitement because they're doing something new. John, a couple of other projects since then. Um, he got tapped for the Whitney Biennial this year, was selected as an artist, and he asked if I wanted to collaborate on that. And um, of course I did. It's a huge honor. So we did another film, and that's going to premiere May 14th and run from the 14th through the 22nd in the museum's theater. The concept behind that one seemed pretty cool. Like it starts as a PowerPoint presentation or yeah, something. It's, 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 it's a PowerPoint presentation and then uh, turns into a cathartic dance party. John is, John's sort of known for one of the things he's known for is setting up the audience to expect one thing and then completely flipping it and delivering something else. So yeah, which is always and the the MoMA has a great yeah. turnaround too. Oh, the film you did for that yes it starts out as a traditional documentary kind of style and then eventually it focuses in on this one character and it kind of breaks down the wall of it being a documentary and starts going into her personal life yeah it, it <laughs> in a weird way <laughs> it, yeah it transitions into a narrative so um in the beginning yeah you think it's just a documentary about the museum and going through this process and then all of a sudden it follows this one character out the door and into her personal life and the film is still you can watch it on the san francisco moma website you can find it on there it's called stories from the evacuation but yeah, in that movie, he does again set up the audience to think one thing is happening, and then all of you know halfway through, you're like, what's going on here? And, you know, turns into something completely different. Yeah, I liked your musical transition from that moment when it goes from documentary to her Thank you. personal life too. That was yeah. the crux of the film in a lot of ways, and uh, you know, probably required the most finessing. kind of interesting like when that music cuts off and it's just silence after that point there's a lot of great places there where music could have gone and i tried scoring um we used it pretty sparsely i think because there's a lot of emptiness and openness which also works really well with no music yeah so you compose every day all day kind of thing or yeah i uh... how how long have you been doing that? Ooh, about 11 or 12 years now. I got my start at Mutato Musica, which is my uncle's studio, Mark Mothersbaugh. You might know him from Devo or from his scoring work. He scored a million things. Got my foot in the door there as an intern and uh, worked my way up to composer and spent about seven years there scoring 
commercials, video games, films, TV shows. It was a great place. And then about maybe four or five years ago, I went freelance and uh, built a studio and I'm just doing it on my own now. And yeah, fortunately, it's been great just uh, doing the same stuff. Lots of films, video games, tons of commercials always and TV shows. And now I also do a lot of songwriting and like co-writing with people and producing tracks for people. So yeah, I've been busy. I'm writing music all the time. Unfortunately, people are still buying it. <laughs> yeah. I'm also an artist. I like to draw as well and keep cool. part of my creative process yeah. flowing. <laughs> yeah, I was seeing some of your dot art, I guess. How? Do, what is that called? The term is stippling, but yeah, it's basically just thousands of tiny dots that you build up to create a texture and a picture. Does that relate to your composing style in any way, do you think? You know, it's funny. I, I, I feel like it doesn't because it's so methodical and so slow. It's a very slow process. I think it's different from music because of music. And maybe it's just because I spend 95% of my time doing music. Music is very fast. I write something very quickly and it's usually, you know, my first impulse is just what I go with. And that's what ends up being the finished product. You know, obviously I've got to mix it and produce it and, you know, make it work and everything. But it's not a slow, methodical process. Do you think in terms of like music theory, chord progressions, that kind of thing when you're... Not usually. If I start to feel stuck, let's say a scene gets extended by an extra minute and I wasn't expecting it and I already wrote the piece and I have to continue it and keep it interesting or whatever, maybe then I'll think, how could I modulate here or that sort of thing. But most of the time, no, I don't really think about it. I've sort of, at this point, I've internalized it and just throw my hands on an instrument and go. I don't get carried away just fiddling and playing stuff and, you know, distracted. If you can think all the way back to the beginning when you're starting, yeah, can you think of any things you learned early on that have stuck with you? One of the biggest things that I learned, and this was probably from my uncle, Mark, was how important it was to have professional sounding mixes, you know, and the production really has to sound professional if you're competing at a professional level. And I think that's a challenge for anybody that's starting out, you know, um, and I tell that to young composers when they ask for advice, like, what can I do, whatever. You may have great ideas, but if the sound quality isn't there, it's not going to be taken seriously. That was something that I struggled with because learning to mix is a lifetime endeavor. Yeah. The more I do it, the more I realize, wow, I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> Yeah, well, in some ways. There's always but... more to learn for sure. I'm sure at any level there's there's more you can learn. And that's kind of why it's cool also. It keeps it interesting. Yeah. But really how you learn is just through a lot of experience and so in the beginning you don't have that experience and um, it's about getting it so I just really dove in and read a lot about mixing you know as much material as I could get my hands on and talk to the older engineers that worked at Mutato you know pick their brain and and just listened a lot you know to my work compared to other people's work and tried to be objective about where my things were falling short I was reading one interview with you, and they had asked about your advice for composing for ads, and you mentioned that you should try and have music that is a little bit elastic or has elasticity. Yeah. Could you kind of explain that? Oh, sure. I think what I was trying to get at is, uh, you know, when you're working with a on ads, usually the turnaround time is really intense. You know, you might only have an hour to make a revision, 
And if you have to go back and retract the drums because all of a sudden you have to deliver a one-minute version and you had only written a 30-second version, well, if you had tracked a full drum set already, you know, you're going to be out of luck if you have to re-mic the whole drum set and then get in there and record it and then mix it and all that. So, for example, I would use, like, fake drums until the picture is locked and, you know, I know that I've got a one-minute that I have to turn in and a 30-second and maybe a 45 or whatever, but it's defined, and then at that point I can go ahead and record the drums, or any instrument for that matter. You don't want to hire a violin player to come play on your 30-second version, and then all of a sudden you have to turn in a minute version and you have to call her back again and pay for two sessions, that sort of thing. So, you know, I think it's about thinking ahead and, yes, staying elastic. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of times, too, I'll uh, have an ending that just sort of fades out, but then I'll also write a definite ending so that if I end up, um, you know, maybe the track only gets licensed for this project and then I can license it again later or something, I've already got a hard ending and a fade ending and I can use whichever one I need to, you know, because some people prefer one or the other. So I'll go ahead and just do that right off the bat because then it's already done and I don't have to think about it. Yeah. What if some of your favorite ads been to work on um the apple get a mac ad was pretty great because it ran for years like four or five years or something and it was in all the apple stores for years and they they redid it with british actors and it ran in britain for years they redid it with japanese actors and it ran in japan for years and and then uh, i did a really cool one with george clooney that was for martini and rossi and uh, it only aired in europe but uh, it was directed by robert rodriguez He's done like, I mean, I think one of his more recent things was Machete 2, and I think he's got a TV series now. He's just a great director and a composer himself. Hmm. There's been so many good ads, it's it's hard to remember. I've been fortunate to work on some great campaigns. What advice would you have for someone who wants to get into that world? Commercial composing? Yeah. Boy, that's a hard one. I don't know. I was fortunate enough to work at a place where the jobs were just coming to us, you know, because we had Mark's name. And when I left, you know, I had a good resume of stuff that I already worked on and knew what I was doing. And I don't know how you break into <laughs> to commercials if you don't have a name and experience already. I'm not sure. I think the best way would probably be to maybe start with films or something. Because a lot of times advertising agencies and creative houses they like to hire film scores to score commercials because they look at their commercials as little films um, I think putting a reel together and then if you have any contacts in the advertising world you know trying to get it to them and say hey I'm trying to do commercials yeah there's a lot of competition out there everybody wants to do it of course it's hard yeah well maybe we could talk a little bit about your uh, personal music projects sure yeah, I was listening to your album, The Great Giddy Up. <laughs> yeah. The the Satin Cowboy mm-hmm. and The Seven Deadly Sins. Yeah, that's basically my solo project, I guess. I played all the instruments on it, except for the horns, which I got a couple of buddies to play on. And then I got some of my friends to sing backup vocals. It's basically classic rock, a little bit of country-inspired, Paul Simon-influenced type stuff. Yeah. I really liked the song Love Finds You. Thanks. That chorus is so catchy. Love finds you at the strangest time. It sneaks up on you from behind. It'll drop you dead in your tracks like a haunted town. Love lives like a mystery. Where it goes, no 
what was that song all about? The lyrics on that took forever. I wrote the chord progression years before I finished the song. I didn't have a personal story to go along with that one. Usually the songs I write will start with a personal experience or feeling that I have, and then I'll, you know, sometimes I'll build a story around that and add in things to make it a more interesting song. But with that one, I really was having trouble, and I ended up going to a library and was just browsing books and looking for inspiration. And I picked up a book that was like nautical artwork. And um, I just sort of let a story start to unfold about this sailor who leaves his hometown to make a name for himself. And he ends up being seduced by a mermaid. He hears the siren call and falls in love and lives under the sea with her. And then at some point he comes up and he realizes he's homesick and leaves it behind. But the waves were big and the nights were long. Jim loved his brand new bride, but he missed his dear old mom. So he snuck out late one night, and when he filled his lungs with air, the siren spell was broken, and he got the hell out of there. Don't find you at the strangest time. It sneaks up on you from behind. It'll drop you dead in your tracks like a heart attack. Another song I liked on that album was I Wonder Where You Went. Yeah. Yeah, I just like the mood of that one. And your vocals, too. I, I was kind of wondering what effects you put on your vocals. I don't think there was a ton of effects on that one. Um, I've got a vintage Neumann U47 microphone, which makes anybody sound a lot better. <laughs> and I think I just found the right register for my voice in particular on that song. It was kind of you know mellow and low. And uh, I ran the U47 through Neve 1073 pre's, but then a little bit of reverb and probably a tiny bit of slapback delay. Typically, that's about all I do. With those sort of songs, which is you're trying to be honest emotionally, I think it's better to not cloud it in a bunch of effects. That's my personal preference when it comes to my songs. The next day you're a world away and I wonder where you got it when you said that you loved me but now you're on the fence what once felt good and natural is now unclear at best do i dream or live the actual i gotta figure out the rest i think everybody has that feeling at some point where you feel connected to somebody and then you don't feel connected anymore and you're wondering Where'd you go? <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Even you might be in the same room still, but that emotional connection just isn't the same anymore. I think everybody's felt that. The next day you're a world away and I wonder where you went. So you've been making music with your wife also? Yeah. Um, we have a band called Hell Beast of the Night. Kind of inspired by Queens of the Stone Age, White Stripes, Jack White. Um, the Black Keys, that sort of a uh, little bit heavy um, kind of thing. And we both sing on it. Uh, she plays bass. I play guitars and keys and percussion. And I think it's an interesting thing to have a um, creative collaboration with your spouse or your partner. And, you know, you got to be careful. You have to really juggle a little bit and keep in mind what's most important to you. And when we started it, I knew that I never wanted it to be a stressful thing for our relationship. So, you know, I mean, I have enough other musical outlets that this band wasn't going to be my my only outlet. And so that helps, too. 
can't let the band tear you apart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. After writing music all day, how do you stay creative and motivated? And what, what do you do if you're feeling not creative someday? I don't really get too burnt out ever. It's more if I need to take a break for perspective. You know, I think it's good to, if you're working on a song all day or whatever, leave it and come back and hopefully hear it with fresh ears and see it with new eyes. So usually I'll just take care of whatever sort of random things that life requires. You know, I'm freelance, so I do have to spend a lot of time still trying to get work, you know, so making connections and things like that. And fortunately, most of the time now it's just through the internet. But, of course, I'll have to put time in doing that. But, um, yeah, mostly it's just creative stuff. You know, sometimes if I feel stuck on one thing, I'll just switch to another project. Because I've always got, like, you know, multiple things going on. So that keeps me interested and keeps my focus and attention, keeps me going. Sure. I was going to ask you if you have any other advice for composers working on documentaries. Because I'm personally going to be working on a documentary about skydiving coming up. Cool. So I'm excited for it. Yeah. I just have never done a longer form documentary scoring before. So I, well, you better skydive a couple of times to see what that's like. <laughs> and then uh, take a little memo recorder with you on the way down and catch any ideas you might have while you're falling out of the sky. Make sure you have a windscreen on it because it'll probably be windy. <laughs> no, I, documentaries are a great place to start. And I keep, getting docs i think just because so many of them are made because docs are one of the cheaper i guess forms of film to make maybe to answer your question you could always do some research and watch some other films about skydiving and take note of the music what works in your estimation and what doesn't you could watch some other documentaries see how the music functions how it could function better sometimes it's just paying attention to does this need music? Does it not need music? Is the music commenting too much on what's happening on the screen? If the director's made other films, it can be useful to watch those and see how the music functioned in those. Maybe you'll notice that in all of them, the music really is just background wallpaper. Or maybe you'll notice that, no, it's actually really incredibly creative, hope, you know, exploratory-type yeah. music, hopefully. <laughs> That'd be nice, yeah. yeah. I, I think they are looking for something a little bit more creative so good hopefully yeah yeah i noticed in your documentaries i don't know if this is a formula you think about but i th think it works really well that you have solid music for the beginning for like this the setup mm -hmm. kind of to the documentary and then at some point when you start getting into more of the details the music cuts out and mm -hmm. i don't know if you did, I, did that i wouldn't say that's my choice i mean usually where the music comes in and out is usually the director has a bigger say in that and they have ideas about that. But I think that usually people use music in the beginning to just draw in the, the viewers, you know, to capture their interest and make them want to watch the film. And then once they've sort of hooked them in, 
maybe the music and the the pacing relaxes a little bit and they tell the story, then I, I would guess that's why that there's always some music at the front. I never really thought about it before, but that, that makes sure. sense. <laughs> sure. Are there any projects in the future that you would just love to do and you've been waiting to do, I guess? Yeah. Um, I love doing video games. I'd love to score more video games. I mean, um, I've done a bunch and I'd like to keep doing them. They're always exciting. What's one of your favorite video games you've worked on? I think The Sims 2 was a great one because it opened a lot of doors and it ended up having a lot of spinoffs from that that were really fun to work with and just a great group of people at EA to work with. And then the Boom Blocks game, there was two of them actually. And it, I don't know if you ever are familiar with that one, but it was for the Wii and basically there's these structures and you just throw balls and grenades and things and blow up these structures. It was really cool. It was a Steven Spielberg EA collaboration and um, mm. it was his idea that, you know, what does everyone love to do? Break stuff. So... <laughs> But the music got to be really creative. I wrote a ton of cool stuff for that. The Simpsons, there was a lot of different composers, I think, on that game. But the few tracks that I got in there were really fun. One of them was basically a drum solo. We brought in the drummer that played on like Royal Tannenbaums and the other Wes Anderson movies to just do this almost like a sing, sing, sing style drum solo. And then over top of it, a tuba comes in and some other horns and harpsichord and stuff there's just a lot of room for creativity you know and you're not worried about stepping on dialogue like you are in you know a tv show or film yeah well silas i have a challenge for you that i put out to all my guests um i always ask people if they want to write an intro theme for their podcast episode oh okay um sure well um i'll i'll just I'll put you in touch with my agent and she can quote you a price and I'll, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Silas. Thank you. For being on Composer Quest here. Yeah, appreciate it. That does it for my talk with Silas Height. For more of his music, visit silashite.com and Height is spelled H-I-T-E. Follow him on Twitter at Satin Cowboy. I have links to all the music from this episode and links to the documentaries we talked about at composerquest.com slash silas. Also, thanks to Chandler Poling and Liz Cook at White Bear PR for putting me in touch with Silas in the first place. Now, it's time once again for... I was working recently on some music and sound design for a video game by my friend Will Tice. He's working on a math-based game that's kind of hard to describe, but basically as you slide some numbered blocks around, they either positively or negatively impact your score. I wanted to design some sounds for when these blocks fall down and hit each other, and I wanted it to reflect whether or not the blocks are good or bad. So I started with the idea that an ascending two-note motive would sound positive. And I thought a descending two-note motive would sound negative if it was something like a minor third down. So if you get three positive blocks in a row, it sounds like this. If you get three negative blocks in a row, it sounds like this. I also wanted the sound for blocks with high numbers to have a little bit more weight to them. 
so I added a lower octave to those. Three big number positive blocks sound like this. And three big negative blocks sound like this. I also had grand ideas for making the music based around the tempo of these falling blocks, but since they could be triggered at any time, I thought it would get a little too cluttered and off-kilter. So I just created a backing track that was up-tempo enough so the block timing wouldn't really matter. Now for the technically inclined, one thing to listen for is how I use an effect called downsampling at the end of almost every phrase. When you downsample something, it means you're taking a smooth sound wave and making it into something with a lot of choppy steps. So that changes a nice smooth sound into a harsher, kind of chiptune-y sound. So what I did is change up the sample rate for a split second here and there to change the tone of the synth and to accent certain notes. I also, in some cases, changed the sample rate over time so that it creates kind of a video gamey whoosh sound. If you want to try this for yourself, look for an effect that has a downsample knob, like the Redux effect in Ableton Live. Then you can twist that knob as you record it, or draw in the automation like I usually do. If this is sounding interesting, but you're missing a step along the way, you can always email me with questions, charlie at composerquest.com. I'll leave you now with the track I came up with, tentatively titled Number Slider Main. Thank you.